Uh, well, welcome everybody. I'm excited to have so many new people with us. Um, this is some, uh, Unorthodox is something I'm very passionate about. It's, it's the space where I can really, I feel like I'm really the most authentically myself as a pastor. Um, it's where the values that I feel as a pastor can, can, um, can be expressed fully. Uh, and um, it's, it's been a really cool kind of safe haven for a lot of folks um, who have been harmed by the church or folks who are just really curious about a more historical understanding of Christianity. Um, so I'm really happy to see a lot of new faces today. I think it, it's almost kind of a serendipitous thing or a, a divine thing, if you will, that I'm doing this topic. Um, as I said, I, I wanted to just come up with a topic that I could do uh, in between our, our last series that we just finished up last Sunday and our series that we're gonna start next Sunday. Um, and, and for me, was, you know, I, I follow a lot of people on uh, social media, a lot of scholars and people that I respect, um, and, and was listening to somebody responding to a video, and it just kind of hit me that I don't know if I've ever really done anything on the language that Christians use today. Um, and I don't know how many of you have grown up in Christian communities. Some of these words might make sense to you as they have been used in those communities that you've grown up with. One thing I'm extremely passionate about is that, um, that that words are used the way they were meant to be used? And when I the very first unorthodox I ever did was on a subject called historical criticism. And historical criticism is simply a tool that scholars use to understand documents from antiquity. And the tools that they use are, in, in layman's terms, how did people back then understand? And you'd be surprised that that's not a very common question people ask themselves when they approach the Bible. They don't think to themselves, um, what did this mean to people 2,000 years ago? And a lot of that is because they were raised in a culture not to ask that question. And I mean, even so, this idea of historical criticism is has been declared a heresy amongst various church denominations because it it seeks to uh, understand information that could be contradictory to some of the uh, doctrines and ideologies that, that, that some churches have. Um, and, and it's something, it's probably the only reason I'm still a pastor <laughs> is because I believe in this and I believe in sharing this with people and I, I believe in us understanding this. Uh, because there is something to Christianity that I find very meaningful and that is its ability to bring people together in the community, its ability to be and include people who are typically excluded. Um, and, and I think that's just honestly the power of it today. And when we look at the Bible from a historical, critical perspective, that's what it was 2,000 years ago. And so that's what these words are going to reflect. I'm, you know, as I'm going through this, I'm just curious if you've heard these words or phrases and, and kind of in what context they were used growing up. Um, and my hope is to provide, provide you some context to these words and phrases, not just to help you understand more, more authentically who the historical Jesus was 2,000 years ago, but I think just as importantly, um, if we're going to be Christians or followers of Jesus or whatever, I think this is what we're supposed to be. Um, so enjoy, and if you have any questions or anything as we go along, please feel free to just raise your hand. And um, so the first word or phrase I'm going to start with is gospel or good news. And, uh, you know, this, this is a word or phrase that's just constantly used by, by pastors, by Christians, by politicians, and it's almost never defined. Um, it's, you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This first little bullet point here is not something I'm saying I believe in. It's just I'm trying to highlight how this is, is used by various organizations, uh, churches, etc. You know, our job is to preach the gospel. We are a gospel-centered church. Rarely does anyone ever ask, what do you mean by gospel? Um, I had an experience here. We hired a woman to be a cantor for us at the church one time. And I gave a, a sermon. It was the first Sunday she was working for us. And in that sermon, I said, here we have in Mark chapter 1, which I actually have listed here. It's the only time that Jesus actually says what, what he means by the gospel or good news. And it says that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, and I said, there it is. That's the gospel. And this woman came into my office the following Monday and said, I disagree with your sermon. And 
what do you mean? And she said, well, the gospel is blah, 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 blah. And she gave a five-point analysis of what the fundamentalist essays of 1910 to 1915 say the gospel is, uh, which is like the inerrancy of scripture, virgin birth, Jesus is the Messiah, and you have to profess faith in Jesus in order to go to heaven after you die. And I'm like, cool, none of that's in the Bible. And she wanted to argue with me. I said, hey, you know, it's fine. We're not going to have a conversation about this. This is just what our church believes in. And if you disagree with that, that's perfectly okay. Um, you just have to decide if you can stay here or not, because this is how we're going to understand this term, gospel, or good news. And she called me on Thursday and quit. Um, and so... So that's what happened. Huh? That's what, I mean, I remember that. I yeah. didn't know that's what happened. That's what happened. Um, and, and so that's just... It's just a, a short story of what happens when we use words, but we all think we're using the same definition. And I think gospel is probably the word that I hear used most often without people saying, well, this is what I mean by it. And there's a lot of inference that comes with this. And so, um, I don't know how, and I don't want to go too deep here, but as I referenced already, uh, 1910 to 1915, there were essays written called Fundamentalist um, Essays of and they were paid for, these essays were paid for by businessmen who wanted to change the way Christianity was thought about. At the time, Christianity was understood as a movement primarily used to help those in need. It's called the social gospel movement. And again, business, um, uh, very influential businessmen decided they wanted to change that and paid theologians to write these essays called Fundamentalists of, Fundamentalists of Christianity. It's where the term fundamentalism comes from. Um, and it completely reoriented how people approached Christianity. And it did a couple things. It made Christianity a self-centered faith. It did that by saying a Christian's whole point is to make sure they're right with God so they can get to heaven after they die. It, it created a complete inward focus. Um, it individualized Christianity. Made it about this is about my journey with God as opposed to how we as a community take care of others. Um, it changed the focus of Christianity from a this life focus to an afterlife focus. The whole point is to get to heaven after you die. And if you're focused on getting to heaven after you die, you're less focused on what's going on in the world right now, which the social gospel movement was very centered in what's going on in the world right now and how can we make the world a better place. Um, and it created this exclusionariness to Christianity as well. It was really much a, a, an in versus out and us versus them. Those who believe versus those who don't. And, and this was so successful that it changed the landscape of Christianity from that point all the way. It's still going on today. Um, so, so gospel good news is a phrase that is used within the New Testament quite a bit. Uh, the Greek word that's used is euangelion. Um, and it, it just simply means good news. If, if you were living 2,000 years ago in, in the wrecking world and a husband walks into the house and says, hey, I have good news, they would have used that word, you are it, it literally just means good news. However, contextually, we do see it, it start to take shape in a very special way in this part of the world, and it's not with Jesus. It's with the very first emperor of Rome, who ends up being the most powerful emperor in the history of the Roman Empire, a guy named Caesar Augustus, who died just a few years before Jesus' birth. Caesar Augustus was Julius Caesar's nephew. Julius Caesar never had children of his own, and so Caesar Augustus ended up inheriting the throne from him. There was a massive civil war that broke out when Julius Caesar was assassinated, as I'm sure many of us know. Um, and Caesar Augustus rose to the ranks of the Roman Senate on that side of the Civil War, went to war with Mark Antony and Cleopatra, and ended up winning that war. And instead of returning Rome back to the Senate, took power for himself. And he didn't do it in a bad way. He actually was incredibly influential. He spread Rome's empire, uh, empirical boundaries to the furthest limits they had, and he helped create a system that was going to keep it in power for the next five years. Really smart guy. Um, brutal guy. Don't get me wrong. But really smart guy. Um, and so uh, there's, uh, there's a writing that came from a church, uh, several churches in Asia. Um, and, and this is what 
to key in for some keywords here, right? Or, or pay attention to some keywords. Since the providence has divinely ordered our existence, has applied her energy and zeal, and has brought to life the most perfect good in Augustus, whom she filled with virtues for the benefit of humans, bestowing him upon us and our descendants as a savior. He who put an end to war and with order peace. Caesar, who by his epiphany exceeded the hopes of those who prophesied good news. There's a lot more to that. Um, that inscription was something that was going on throughout the empire about Caesar. And really the, the, there's two things about this that are important. One, it's saying that Caesar ended the civil war, so he has brought peace to humanity. The second thing it's saying is that Caesar is God. And, and, and Caesar is the only human being in the, in the Greco-Roman world who has divinity pressed upon him while he is alive. You have figures like Hercules um, uh, who become divine after they die, but Augustus is the only person who becomes divine while he's alive. And, and don't get me wrong, it's propaganda. Caesar is, and is using very influential people to say that he is God on earth. Did that by saying he is the son of Apollo. There's another wonderful story that we have some similarities with where Caesar's uh, wife is visited by Apollo as a virgin, and then when Apollo leaves, she is suddenly pregnant without having sex, and so she gives birth to Caesar as a virgin. Sound familiar? <laughs> um, and so, so good news became something associated with Caesar. Then we have Mark 1 1. It's the earliest gospel we have, um, and literally starts off the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So two phrases there, right? Good news and Son of God. Both phrases attributed to Caesar. Um, Mark 1.15, as I, as I just said, is, is kind of this thesis statement of what gospel means. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come here. Repent and believe. Um, and then Luke, which is where we get one of our Christmas, our Jesus' birth stories. Uh, do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah of the Lord. Um, that Lucan text, especially right there, that story about Jesus' birth, is intentionally paralleling this writing from his church in Asia. This church in Asia had this writing about Caesar, and these were things about Caesar that were all over the place. Caesar is the good news. Caesar is the savior of humans. Um, Caesar will bring peace to humanity. And Caesar was a brutal, a brutal uh, monarch. And so um, here you have Luke sharing his story, and he's essentially saying Caesar is not the savior. Caesar is not the good news. Jesus is. And what becomes important in that moment is, is who Jesus represents. Or, or, or how Jesus is represented. Jesus is not born in a palace. He's not born from wealth. He's born out of wedlock. Um, he's born to a small, uh, persecuted tribe within the Roman Empire. Uh, what, the, what the gospel writers there are essentially saying is, is uh, Jesus is like Bizarro Caesar. I don't know how familiar any of you are with Bizarro Superman, right? The opposite of Superman. Jesus is Bizarro Caesar. He is the opposite in every way imaginable. Yet at the same time, Jesus is the true Savior, and this is the real good news. And it doesn't contain within it the violence that Caesar used to unite the empire. It doesn't contain within it the wealth and the power and the domination that Rome employed to keep everyone in line. It is the complete opposite. And so the, the, that word, gospel or good news, was always meant to be used as kind of a bizarro way to understand Jesus in comparison to all wealth and power that you might encounter in the world. And then you imagine how that understanding is completely removed 2,000 years later. That's typically not something that people associate when they hear gospel, is this idea of Jesus as bizarro Caesar. Jesus as, um, as upholding values that are antithetical to power and violence and dominance. And so that word, that phrase, gospel good news, was always meant to be utilized from that understanding. So that's word phrase number 
question. Yeah, I always yes. thought that a gospel was was the actual supposed a quotation from Jesus. I thought that's what go- a gospel was gospel. all my life. Yeah. No, I mean, really, gospel is just from the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, and it's, it's usually the gospel of Jesus according to these writers. So it's them sharing what they believe the good news is, or how Jesus embodies that good news. So really, you have to kind of know what, what was written about Caesar to understand the whole good news idea. Absolutely. And then you can ask yourself, well, why didn't anybody write that down 2,000 years ago? And that's because everybody already knew this, mm-hmm. right? If I'm writing to one of you about the football game today, and I'm talking about, um, uh, let's say I start talking about Brock Purdy's passer rating, right? Some of you might have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about right now. Some of you might. Let's just imagine I'm writing to someone talking about Brock Purdy, the quarterback of the San Francisco 49ers, about his passer rating six weeks. It might be more effective if you say Swifty. If I'm writing to a friend, though, I don't have to tell them what passer rating means. They already know it. It's already inferred, right? The same thing here. Uh, It would have been inferred. People would have heard the word gospel or good news and immediately connected it with Rome and Caesar because that's just how they understood it. So for for gospel writers to use the word gospel or good news, um, it would have been an act of treason. And people would have known that they were making a very bold statement against Rome. They wouldn't have had to describe, okay, well, gospel here is actually referring to blah, 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 because everybody would have just known it, right? I saw a funny thing the other day. It said, in 2,000 years from now, people won't know the difference between butt dial and booty call. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why interpreting the Bible is very hard. So context isn't explained in this stuff because everybody knew the context 2,000 years ago. We have to work extra hard today to know the context and what's going on in the story ahead of time. So the, the fundamentals of Christianity, was there a tension that was happening that led to those being formulated and put out? Yeah, there was. That tension was the social gospel movement was putting a lot of pressure on major businesses to unionize. This is when a lot of um, workers' rights stuff is happening in the country. And um, nobody on on business side had anything in regards to Christianity to refer to in, in support of what was going on. Christianity was almost exclusively in this social gospel movement side. And now to be clear, I'm not saying that Christianity is about labor rights or anything that, that's probably a different conversation, but that is just what was going on at the time. Um, and so it's a very concerted effort by businesses to change the way Christianity kind of um, put a lens on what was going on in the country. Steve? It seems to me also that along with that, in the last half century or so, there's been a switch from the gospel being individualistic to the gospel also being um, net, uh, directional in terms of like you shall do this or you won't be going to heaven even though you came forward and were saved if you don't live up to the standards that we think you ought to then you can end up in hell absolutely and we're going to talk a lot about that power dynamic with our other phrases here because that's, that does end up um, you know happening yeah. so the next phrase here is son of God son of God Mark, really sorry. quick question yeah. The 1910 to 15, where is that taking place geographically? I mean, is that North America? It's definitely the United States. Okay, so um, it's kind of the beginning of organized religion in the U.S. Then. I mean, or, as far as doctrine and stuff like that, this is the, this is the rules by which we're going to operate. Yeah, I would say up until this point. Doctrine was kind of understood denominationally. Each denomination had their own doctrine. This is the start of where we see doctrine um, start to conglomerate amongst one political side. Uh, Prior to this, Christianity was not something you could split into conservative or liberal. 
And so this is when that process starts of where you can now conglomerate um, conservative denominations who will adopt these fundamentalist precepts and then liberal denominations who will not. Um, prior to that, those conservative denominations didn't have a whole lot in common with each other. Uh, they were still very separate from one another and this starts to kind of unify them. What about the Catholic sense. Church in the US at that time? Catholic go Church was just doing its own thing okay. as they're doing now, which is not a bad thing. They just had enough of their own influence that they didn't have to really be involved in that process. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Son of God is the next term that I want to take a look at. Um, you know, we think of this term as something that's just simply highlighting Jesus' direct lineage from God. Jesus is literally the Son of God, right? I don't know how many of you have grown up with that, that understanding of Jesus. We have John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Um, the first 300 years of Christianity, Jesus is not understood as being God. In fact, the term son of God throughout antiquity, son of God, son of man, is, is understood through Second Temple Judaism and prior as someone who is just a beholder of God. Um, often the, 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 the son of God is Israel. It's an entire nation almost a phrase that's understood metaphorically. It was never meant to be understood literally. Um, and, and yet, that's probably how most of us grew up, that that phrase, Son of God, was describing Jesus' direct lineage. However, as I've already mentioned up above, the term Son of God is a phrase that was reserved exclusively for Caesar Augustus. Um, and it was Caesar Augustus' way of um, kind of using propaganda to all the conquered territories in Rome and with, and with Roman citizens letting them know descendant of Apollo, I am divine. Everything that I'm doing as Caesar is also divine. And so by following me, you are following the gods. By not following me, you are going against the gods. Um, the term son of God was, was only reserved for him. It wasn't utilized by anybody else until gospel writers start writing about Jesus. And, and they're doing the same thing. They're using that phrase, son of God, not to describe God or Jesus' lineage from God, but to use that title as a bizarre Caesar. Caesar is not the true son of God. Jesus is the true son of God. And, and what makes him special as the son of God? Again, he's poor. He reaches out to the marginalized. He's doing a, a movement of the oppressed. He's egalitarian and equitable and nonviolent and um, utilizes values of abundance and compassion and forgiveness. He is everything that Caesar is not, and he is the true son of God. It's a political term sense, although politics and religion were the exact same thing in antiquity. You can't, can't necessarily, I don't want to, I don't want to load that term the way we think of it today. Um, but it was meant to be that radical term. It was, and it was treason. It was treason to call Jesus the Son of God. Um, there's a, 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 a monument in the city of Nicopolis, um, that, that, that city name right there, Nicopolis. Anyone recognize a part of that word? Other than Polis, I guess. Nico, um, we have a very famous brand in our country today that utilizes that term. Nike. Nike, which just means victory. City of victory. It was a city that Caesar had um, conquered, and then he himself erected a monument. Uh, it's, and that monument is where his tent was while this city was being conquered. Um, and on that monument, uh, it, it's written in Imperator Caesar, son of God, following the victory in the war with Mark Antony Especially the way that the church has used that. 
are we are a country that thinks about uh, sovereignty in, in, in kind of unique ways. You know, we're a country that wrestles sovereignty away from the monarchy. Um, also seems like, however, that Jesus is king and the rest of us are his servants. Yeah, but then there's also a hierarchy among the servants, I know. right? <laughs> I mean, it's, it really is a, a hierarchy that it's established. Yeah. And it's the same as the above, folks. Um, a king would have been used by someone like Herod, uh, King Herod, if you've heard of him, who received his, um, received his uh, authority from Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus literally gave Because, um, you know, because Jesus got vested and then got, um, and was crucified because people were calling him king, right? Was that right? 
And people thought he was, and so isn't that why he got arrested? That's the story of the, that's kind of the story in the gospel. Uh, and that's, the way it's told in the gospel is the religious authorities in Jerusalem are telling Pontius Pilate, the representative of Rome, hey, you need to kill this guy because he's claiming to be king, which right. is treason. Right. Um, his, what, what scholars believe, though, is that um, Rome killed Jesus because he was looked at as, as an insurrectionist. And I don't mean insurrectionist in a violent way. I mean, like, he was, his message, his values, his movement was um, upsetting the established order. And really what he was doing was just calling out Rome. Mm-hmm. And what's happened, it really starts in medieval Christianity and kind of moves forward from there. Um, people think that Jesus is calling out the religious order. He's calling out um, the Jewish people of his time. And going back to historical when you look at the historical context, what Jesus is really doing is calling out his religious leaders' collusion with Rome, which was exactly what was going on at that time. Uh, the temple leaders of the Jerusalem temple were colluding with Rome. They'd gotten very wealthy off of Rome. They were engaging in propaganda on Rome's behalf, and Jesus very much called that out, and so he was, he was crucified. It's sort of like Martin Luther King and Gandhi and that got assassinated because of their... Um, they're, I guess, insurrectionists in a way. Well, I mean, just, and then we see this anyone who calls out the current order, mm-hmm. you can look at many different times and places to see that become um, the focus of, uh, of backlash. For sure. Yeah. Okay, Messiah, Christ, Savior. Um, when you think of Messiah today, it's or the Christ or the Savior, it's really, it's, it's only function for Christianity today is that that, that that title, that figure, Jesus as Messiah or Christ as Savior, it's really just to get us to heaven after we die. We've kind of stripped away from Jesus any other component than that right there. That's the whole point of him being Messiah, Messiah or Savior of Christ. If you accept Jesus as Christ or Messiah, then you get to go to heaven after you die, um, which is not contextually in the Bible. Um, And, what's, and there, there's also this other element of Messiah that's, that was believed in Second Temple Judaism, the time that Jesus existed, and that was that people in Jesus' time believed that, that God was going to send a Messiah who was a military leader, who did come from a good family, who was probably of uh, the Jewish religious order at the time, and his function was going to drive out whichever oppressing power was there. They, people, Jews in this time, believed that in a Messiah that was going to come and drive out the Babylonians when the Babylonians had exiled the Jews. They believed that um, a Messiah was going to come. Actually, we even have texts in the prophets, I think it's Malachi, where um, uh, Cyrus the Great, the Persian king, who ends up taking, becomes the next superpower over um, the Babylonians, is called by the Jewish people the Messiah because Cyrus the, Cyrus the Great defeats Babylon frees the Jews in exile to go back and allows them to rebuild the temple. And so there's a point in time where Cyrus, this Persian king who had absolutely no knowledge of God and wasn't a Jewish person, was believed to be the Messiah. Um, They believed the Messiah was going to come out and drive out the Greeks during the Maccabean revolt. Uh, They believed that the Messiah was going to come and defeat Rome and drive them out as well. Uh, Messiah was a military leader and someone who was going to use violence and warfare and was just going to do it better than whichever oppressive was there and reestablished the kingdom of Israel. Then Jesus comes along as the Messiah, and again, he's the complete opposite of that. He is not about violence or warfare. He talks about loving enemies, blessing those who persecute you. Um, He comes from a poor family. Kind of what we've been talking about already, he is the opposite of what people conceived of. And so if we're going to use that term Messiah or Christ or Savior today, uh, it damn well better be in the same context. This is meant to be talking about someone who is the opposite of what, wherever our minds go, when we think violence and warfare and domination is the way to solve anything. The whole point of Jesus taking on that title of Messiah was to be in stark contrast to anybody, any power, any group that was going to use violence or domination or warfare to harm someone else and take power from them, which is just the cycle of violence that existed in this time. It really makes what Jesus is doing a very novel and radical thing 
wanted to get to know the new pastor of Athena, and so I went and had lunch with them, and after we ate lunch, they got to the part where they wanted to ask questions and get to know me better. The very first question out the gate was, when were you saved? Has anyone ever heard that question before? When were you saved, right? And the idea there is that you say, I was saved on the day that I consciously uh, made Jesus, or accepted Jesus as my Savior. Uh, there are churches that do altar calls, we've talked about this, where they ask, does anybody want to commit their life to Jesus today? And they ask people to come up and make a public declaration, right? Um, and so this group asked me, when were you saved? And I said, 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on the cross. And like their mouths just, and, and I have not been invited back. But it was, it was just shocking because I didn't grow up with this kind of understanding of, of what being saved is. It was weird to hear that question out loud for me. And then as I've been pastor longer and longer, I realized that's actually quite a large part of people's faith life growing up, this moment of when they were saved. Um, and this idea of being saved or salvation the way we understand it today is so, it would be so foreign to people 2,000 years ago. They would be shocked that this is what this is. Um, in fact, when we look at the records of how the Bible is being translated from Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, we see certain words start to be changed as well. And a lot of the words that we now have as either saved or salvation used to be understood as either liberation or deliverance. So people understood the task of God or Jesus in their life as a task of liberation or deliverance. And for Jewish people, which Jesus was Jewish, this goes back to the Exodus story. This goes back to Moses. Moses came and liberated his people, God's people, from the Egyptians. And so the story of Jewish people all the way up into Jesus, who was living under Roman oppression, is a story of liberation and deliverance. It has absolutely nothing to do with afterlife or going to heaven after you die. It has nothing to do with that at all. All of the stuff about salvation and being saved is entirely about deliverance and liberation. And it starts with the medieval church, but that language starts to shift. And the reason it starts to shift is because, again, as I said at the beginning, if I am more focused on being saved or my own salvation, I'm going to be less focused on the least of these who exist among us, the marginalized, the excluded, that Jesus really centered his movement on. Um, and so it's, I mean, it's a brilliant move by the church to kind of change this around and move people's focus away from an outward focus into more of an inward focus. But I will tell you right now, the idea of being saved or this idea of salvation for heaven is a modern understanding of Christianity. And it's, it's one, it's in, I would say it's a nefarious one uh, because it robs Christianity of its historical focus of being a movement of deliverance or, liberate, deliverance or liberation. Steve? And it's communal rather than individual. It's entirely communal. Thank you, Steve. Yeah. It is not individualistic at all because people in antiquity didn't think individualistically. They didn't. They couldn't afford it. If you were an individual, you died. There's just too much danger out there. You only existed as a community. So it was. Thank you, Steve. It's a modern one. It is like, I think just to acknowledge, it's also like almost heretical, what you're saying. The way it's being used now is heretical. Uh, well, what you're pointing out Yes. Greco-Roman wisdom, um, this idea that in Greco 
understanding. And so John is saying, well, yeah, you've got part of that right, but Jesus really is that wisdom. Um, and, and, and it has nothing to do with the Bible. It has nothing to do with the written word, because the written word didn't exist at the time. Um, and and the, the part that I really want to connect to there is that people today, and this is kind of the Bible at the bottom, really want to give the Bible supernatural abilities or supernatural authority. And then what they get to do with that is say it's my interpretation. So here's the Bible that has this power in our lives, but I'm the one who knows what it's saying. And so when I use that influence to talk about things in our society, policy, etc., you need to listen to me because I'm the one that holds the authority of this word of God. Um, and, and, and the crazy thing is the Bible is just not a cohesive thing, period. The Bible is a contradictory book written by tons of people over hundreds and hundreds of years. Were you going to say something, Steve? No, you just I was okay. scratching my ear. Um, and I'm going to jump into the Bible there, the written word of God. Um, and the only word I really want to help kind of bring out there and, and I don't know how any of you struggle with this. I don't think we've talked about this in the Orthodox yet. Um, it's this, this word univocality, which is a, a kind of a technical term, right? Univocality, which just simply means with one voice. And that's the belief that the Bible is written with one voice from beginning to end, meaning the entire Bible agrees with itself. It's all written essentially by the Holy Spirit, um, and it completely agrees with itself. It's cohesive. It's always in agreement, like written with one voice. That is absolutely 100% not true. The Bible contradicts itself constantly because it's written over the course of about a thousand years by like 27 different people who are writing from their own customs, their own values, their own timeline, their own context. Those contexts didn't agree with each other at the time. Uh, for example, we've got um, in the Book of Kings, uh, the, uh, King David um, has a census that goes out uh, for Israel. He wants all of Israel to be counted so that he can levy a tax on them. And God is the one that commands David to do that. However, this is a bad thing to do a census amongst Israel because you're going to tax God's chosen people. And so you have, and the reason God tells David to do this is because God is pissed at the Israelites. The Israelites forget what they've done wrong, but God is pissed. God tells David, go out and take a census because we're going to punish the people. Then you get the book of Chronicles, which is written about 500 years later. It's Satan that tells David to go out and take a census. So there you have, and that's just one example. You have the same exact story. In one of them, God is telling David to go out and take the census. In the other, it's Satan that tells David to go out and take the census. You just cannot reconcile those two stories. And really what happens is you have a story where it already existed. God had told David, go out and take a census. 500 years go by, and people are like, man, God's a dick. <laughs> and finally, someone said, I'm going to write the same story, only it's going to be Satan this time instead of God. They literally changed the story so that God would no longer be the bad guy. But it's the same exact story. Those two things absolutely contradict themselves, and you cannot reconcile that. You just simply can't. The Bible does not speak with one voice. Does that mean that we should dis disregard the Bible? Absolutely not. The Bible, from beginning to end, are the stories of, of people's experiences with God. They're the stories of people's experience with strife and pain and suffering, um, of being persecuted, of being harmed, of celebration, of all of these incredible human things, and they're always wrestling with it, and God is somehow in the midst of that for all of them. And for them, they always come out on the other side of that, still trusting in God's plan for their lives, and that plan is always about justice and equality and egalitarianism and love and compassion and all of that stuff, and they wrestle with it, and they screw up, and they make mistakes, Bible writers are changing stuff all the time as they go through it, but you're still dealing with actual people who are wrestling with stuff and have a tremendous amount to teach us about resilience and love and trust and compassion and justice. All of that exists, and you can pull all of that out of the Bible. You can pull all of that out of the historical G 
tools like historical criticism and, 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 and wrestling with a lot of doctrine and dogmas that you probably grew up with that I would say are, are, are harmful. Um, the Bible can be a, a wonderful thing, and, and I believe that Christianity can be a wonderful thing as long as we're constantly looking at the context and holding up a critical lens and understanding what people were going through then helps us understand what we should be doing now. Um, my series starting next Sunday is going to be talking about the sexual ethics of, of the New Testament, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that um, women were property. From the beginning of the Bible to the very end of the Bible, women were property. That's not okay. We should never take the Bible and say, well, the Bible says it, so we're gonna, we're, women are going to be property again, because that's what the Bible says. No one in our society is making that argument. Every single person has said that's part of the Bible that we're not going to follow. Or slavery. The Bible talks more about slavery than it talks about homosexuality, and yet everybody says we're just going to ignore the parts about slavery, right? Um, but we're going to pick and choose our parts about women being um, submissive to men, about queer people being bad, about all those things. We're willing to renegotiate the parts of the Bible that meet our value systems and then pick and choose the parts that we're going to use literally. And, and that's absurd because everybody approaches the Bible contextually. Anyone who says that they approach it literally is just lying to themselves. And really what we need to do is understand the values that are consistent, values of compassion and equity, egalitarianism and all that stuff, and understand how we can make changes to what the Bible is saying um, and really pull out its truth for our lives today. So that's my spiel. Any thoughts or questions before we wrap up? You're suggesting that there are a myriad of authors for one central theme. Does that in fact imply different audiences for each? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So uh, the Bible, the Bible, the, the Bible is the earlier parts of the Bible is passed down orally, yeah. and you think about people just passing down stories around campfires, um, and then it's under King Solomon that it starts to get written down. Yeah.
make sure you buy your Foscon tickets. Uh, you don't, we can't find you. <laughs> All right.